All right, well, again, welcome to Hope Lower Town. Those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian, uh, lead pastor here at, at uh, Hope Lower Town, and uh, I'm glad that you're able to be here on this nice, hot, sweaty, steamy, a little moist in here, right? Am I allowed to say that? Uh, it's, you know it's bad when you have to come in an unair conditioned building to get reprieve from the heat, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's bad. It's pretty bad. Anyways, glad you're able to make it in this morning. Uh, and uh, let's let's get going. Uh, we are in a series right now. Oops, just did it. Don't give it away. Uh, we are in a series right now called The Story of the Bible in 16 Verses. And uh, we're doing something a, a little bit different. Normally, we, we take a book and we uh, walk through that book of the Bible uh, and, and just kind of take chunk by chunk of a, of a passage. But in the summer, we, we do things a little bit differently. Uh, and so we're kind of doing a, a, it's called a, a biblical theology. We're just kind of make walking through the main storyline of the Bible and, uh, and so that's what we're going to be doing, uh, doing this morning. Uh, but before we, we get into that, I, I, I was thinking about this this past week, that what is it about movies or books, uh, mainly in, in like horror movies, where people always do like the dumbest thing possible? You know what I mean? Like, hey, let's split up. You know what I mean? Like, let's, let's all, how about you go that way? I'll walk down this dark, shady alley by myself. Like, you, you just, that would never happen. Uh, and that happens a lot where people just make the same stupid mistakes over and over and over. Um, my all-time, I mean, hands down, all-time favorite movie uh, is Jurassic Park. It always has been. It was the first movie I saw in the theaters. I was seven years old, and it rocked my world. And I remember uh, I was seven, uh, which I was, that's pretty young. My kids will watch it when they turn seven. It's like, it's like the thing, you know what I mean? Like on their seventh birthday, we're going to watch Jurassic Park. Because I watched it when I was seven. You can handle it too. Um, and, and so uh, it was the 90s. We did things differently back then. Uh, but, I, but in the movie, I remember I closed my eyes. You know, I was terrified, you know, a lot of times. And I remember afterwards, my dad was like, oh, man, you were closing your eyes a lot. And my response, which I give myself credit for my seven-year-old brain, was like, I wanted to save some new parts for when I watch it again. I wanted to, you know, I want to, want to see some things for the first time. I don't want to ruin it the first time. Why would you do that? But what's interesting about Jurassic Park is really how dumb the storyline really is, right? When you think about it, it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic movie. But what we see over and over and over again is the people making the same, right? So things we learned that my mom sent me this meme. Number one, don't build a dinosaur park. Number two, don't try to build a second dinosaur park. Number three, don't take an aerial tour of a dinosaur park. This is Jurassic Park one through six here, right? Number four, don't engineer bigger dinosaurs and invite a bunch of families to your dinosaur park. Number five, don't build your dinosaur park on top of a volcano. And then number six, I had to add this one. Six apparently wasn't on the list, but don't engineer even bigger dinosaurs. Just don't do it, right? It's, you'd, you'd think at some point they would learn, uh, but they haven't. And But we we do this all the time. And so we're going to see today in scripture, individuals, people who just keep making the same mistake, mistake singular that we're going to hone in on today over and over and over. But we ourselves make the same exact mistake. So just to kind of recap briefly where we've been, we looked at creation, uh, that God created in the beginning. It was good. He creates human beings, male and female. And then he, uh, then there's the fall, humankind, Adam and Eve rebel against uh, God, but then there's a promise, Genesis 3.15, all the way back in the beginning, uh, that, the, that the serpent that tempted Eve, the devil, Satan, that's very clarified throughout the Bible, this serpent is the devil, uh, that the serpent tempts Eve and Adam, and, and God is cursing the serpent and says, uh, you, uh, devil, you serpent are going to bite 
a heel of an individual, but that individual is going to crush your head. It's going to bruise your head. And that's a promise that's made of, of salvation. And, and then we get to Abraham, a, a not a good guy, uh, that sometimes these, these Old Testament fathers of the faith, that they're, they're kind of put up on a pedestal, and they shouldn't be. Not a good individual, but God chooses him. Uh, and then we look at Judah the king. Judah, again, really bad guy. If there's, there's certain times where you read the Bible, uh, and when you read Judah's story in, the, in Genesis, you're like, if, if I ever wanted someone to believe my religion, I would have left out the story of Judah, right? I mean, it's just like, it's a, why, it's a, oh man, I want to worship that God. I want to worship that king. No, it, it just, it's in there because it's narrative. It's not descriptive or it's descriptive, not prescriptive. He's not saying do what Judah does. He was in the Bible. Look at that. No, terrible, bad. But God chooses Judah's line to be a kingly line. Now, we looked at it a couple weeks ago, and then uh, Paul preached on Passover lamb and kind of, again, did this biblical theology of sacrifice uh, that we see in Scripture. Last week, looking at the law, that the law is worthless, uh, that if you are going to try to obey all the laws of the Bible, then you better do it perfectly. And Jesus comes and says, stop that. You can't. I did. Be free in me. And then today, we're going to be looking at King David. So this week's sermon is titled, The Dumb Tax. Uh, and we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 7, 12 through 13. Actually, just very briefly, are we going to look at, at those verses? But uh, we're going to be, again, kind of all over the place. So if you're following along your Bible, that's fine. Uh, but we're doing a lot of history books today. Uh, and so I'll have all the scripture up on the screen so you can follow along that way. Um, so the dumb tax, what is that? Uh, Larry Osborne, he's a pastor out in California. He wrote a couple books on church planning and, and what is it? It's sticky church and sticky teams. Great, great books. If you're into church planning, you can go ahead and read them. Um, and, uh, but he has this phrase of like, let's let other people pay the dumb tax. And what he means by that is let's wait for the real entrepreneurs to go out there and fail miserably and learn from their mistakes. Okay. Uh, and so that's the, it's true in church planning. Let's let the big denominations go out and spend a lot of money, watch what didn't work for them, and then we can go do it better. Uh, it's kind of how he talks about that. And if you grew up with siblings, if you're a younger sibling, you learned, you, your older siblings paid the dumb tax quite regularly, right? You'd see them ride their bike down a hill after mom and dad said, don't do that without your helmet, and then they wipe out and end up in the hospital. That never happened to me, but it's, it's, an, it's a story. It's a fake story. You get it. Right? Okay, I'm going to learn from that lesson, right? I see, you know, I'm at grandma's house. This is a true story. And I see my sister say something sassy was the word my grandma used to use. And, and my grandma would slap her hard across the face. I go, hmm, I'm not going to do that, right? Uh, my sister gets to pay the dumb tax on that. I do remember one time my grandma went to slap my sister and my sister ducked. And then I got the, the follow through. And I remember my grandma was like, you probably deserved it anyway. So I was like, oh, I didn't even do anything. Oh, man. Anyways, what we're going to see, though, today is that we have this, uh, our big older sibling, oh, older sibling of Israel, that Israel is going to make some pretty foolish mistakes when it comes to their view of God and specifically the kingdom. And so we're going to look at King David today, Second Samuel chapter 7 says this, I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. Uh, I've actually got an outline today. Hey, look at this. Um, I actually wrote the sermon. And I was like, oh, there's kind of an outline. I'll put it in there. So it, it just kind of happened. You know me. Uh, so we're going to walk through this. The history of the king, 
uh, the establishment of a king and slash kingdom and then the kingdom of God. Uh, what did Jesus mean by that? What's it look like? And then what this means to us today and what it does not mean to us today. So let's look at now this history of the king. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of scripture today. Boy, this is not working out too well, is it? Uh, there's a lot of scripture that I'm going to be reading. I'm going to do my best not to just, you know, just a history story. Hey, cool. Here's the history of the kingdom in the, in the Bible and the history of Israel. That's terrible. If you walk out of here and only think about, oh, now I know and understand a little bit more about Israel than I've, I've failed you. I've failed my savior. That's not the point of this. And yet I think a little bit of context helps us really build up uh, to who Jesus really is. And so I'm going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 17, and at this time, in this area, period of time that I'm about to read, it is a theocracy, meaning it's God ruled. God is in charge, and he's got a man, which is Moses, who's helping rule and, 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 and be in charge of the people, but God is working through Moses. Moses is not a king. Um, he is not a prophet, although he does things like a prophet. He does things like a king. He does things like a priest, but he's not a priest. Uh, and because God, God runs it. It's a, it's a theocracy, like God rules. It's, but in Deuteronomy chapter 17, we're going to get a description of something that's actually going to happen. And, uh, and so God is, is now saying this to Moses. It says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell it, and you will say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. That is a key line in this command. Hey, you, you want a king? Don't do it. I, you, I would prefer you just remain a theocracy. But, but when you do choose a king, I'm going to be the one. God is going to be the one who's going to choose that king. One from among your brothers, you shall set his king over you. You may not have put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So he's, he's going to give a list of stipulations that if you want a king, I'm going to choose it, and it's going to be an Israelite, going to be a Hebrew. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest the heart, lest his heart be turned away, because women are just evil. No, <laughs> that's uh, polygamy. That's what's not good. Okay? Uh, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. I just, it seems like, okay, God's making a list of rules that just sound so counterintuitive to the cultural king uh, that would have been going on around him. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So it's not about fame and wealth and status. This is about servant leadership and humility. And I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna acquire wealth so I can rob these individuals. So that's kind of the history. That's what God says. Here's the rules way before. This is thousands of years before a king is actually established. God's like, I know you're going to do this. So here's the rules for when this does happen. So then it now happens. All right. So again, in context here, Samuel, the high priest, his prophet, he's talking to the Israelites and the Israelites are saying, we want a king. 
We want a king like all the nations around us. And he's like, okay, God knew this was gonna happen. Matter of fact, we wrote it down, uh, what God said about this. So he goes and he rereads Deuteronomy 17, what I just read, and he reads it to the Israelites. And this is their response. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them to the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his own city. So that's what happens. And and we're going to see now this individual who's going to be appointed king. And so the next chapter in chapter 9, 1 Samuel chapter 9 says this, there was a man of Benjamin. Okay, right off the bat. If you've been here for a couple weeks, two weeks ago, or maybe three weeks ago, whenever it was, who was the, where, who's the line that the kings were supposed to come from? Does anyone remember? Judah. It's supposed to come from Judah. So right here off the bat, there was a Benjamite. There was a man from the, the line of Benjamin. And it's like, uh, that's not what God wanted. It was always supposed to be from the tribe of Judah that the kings were going to come. So there's a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abel, son of Zeor, son of Bechorath, son of Alpha, Alpha, you know what I'm saying, and Benjamin. Again, this is a, son of, a descendant of Benjamin, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. And there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the other people. And so you can see right here that the Israelites see this man, see Saul. Say, man, he's, he's handsome. He's, he's beautiful. And he's huge. Like he is a man's man. That is the guy that's going to be our king. Right? No test. No, like, <laughs> there's no, how, is, he a, is he competent? Is he capable? Is he wise? Is he astute? Is he frugal? None of this stuff. He's just, you're big. Uh, so you and you're handsome. So you should be our king. We think that's what that would be a good idea, All right? And so the people choose solely on their on an, on an outward physical appearance. And and if we skip forward in the story, and we do right here, if we make a comparison between Saul, this Benjamite who's going to be made king of Israel, the first king, and there's twelve little city-states kind of nations, and, and he's going to unite them all. they become one nation of Israel under Saul. And if we look at these comparisons, that we can see that Saul comes from wealth, but then he only seeks to acquire more wealth, the exact opposite of what was commanded in Deuteronomy. And then if we make the comparison to Jesus, again, comes from wealth, the king of kings, lord of lords, owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to put that aside And I'm going to be born of a lowly birth. I'm going to live in poverty. We see Saul is chosen for these physical qualities. There's there's no one in Israel more handsome than him. That's a a pretty good description. And yet when we see Jesus, there's not really anything told of his physical appearance that he was of average whatever. There's not really anything that's given about Jesus, that people didn't look on Jesus and follow him because of his physical appearance. And then we can see, I think most importantly, that he, Saul, is chosen by men rather than chosen by God. We don't sing the hymn, but an old hymn by Martin Luther, 
a mighty fortress, right? The, the chorus, a man of God's own choosing, right? Is this, is this thing, right? God chose. He's the chosen one. He's the Messiah. It's very different. So not long after this whole thing, Saul is anointed king of Israel and he fails miserably. He does exactly the opposite of what God commands and God's like, okay, you're done. You're done. You're no longer going to be king. We're going to anoint a new king, except this time I got dips. This time I'm choosing who's going to be king. So I'm going to, I'm going to kind of skip around here a little bit just because I don't want to just read because I'm already, I've already been doing that. I'm going to keep reading more stories. And so I just wanted to, so there's going to be a new, new king and, and God's going to choose. And he says this to Samuel, and you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. We all know Bethlehem is where Jesus was born. Okay, there's going to be something significant about Bethlehem. And so we have, just skipping forward in the story to verse six, they, they came and so Samuel's going to go to this guy named Jesse and Jesse's got eight sons. And, and God directs him to Jesse and says, one of these sons is going to be king. And I want you to stand there and I want you to, to choose one of these sons. It says this, and when he came and he looked on Eliab and thought, this is the oldest, firstborn, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, here's the exact opposite of Saul, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. I love this line. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It's a great line. Now, if you were like me and you grew up in a cult, <laughs> this line was, was used in a very negative way. This was, this, I'm not making this up. Okay, you're like, this doesn't sound true. This is true. This happened. This phrase, the Lord sees, not as the man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart was called a biblical truism, meaning God looks at the heart. But we, human beings, we do look on the outward appearance. So therefore, you should look the right way, right? You should look like a Christian. And apparently that meant not having beards. And apparently it meant not having your hair touch your collar. Apparently it meant you could only have three, three fingers before your, you know, your shirt, your skirt, you know, whatever, all the things, right? You got to look like a Christian. I remember going to the president of my college. This is, this is bizarre. You're like, this is not true. This is true. I promise you. Uh, at my college at Maranatha Baptist Bible College, you're like, oh, okay, this, maybe this checks out. Um, he, on, on Fridays, we had casual Fridays and we were allowed to wear blue jeans. But you had to pay a dollar to get a sticker and you put on your belt. Girls were allowed to wear jean skirts. Huh? 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 Yeah. <laughs> I might not make it up. And he got there and he said, no more of that. No more of these blue jeans, hippie stuff. Guy can't have that. And I went to him and I was like, I was on the, the student council or whatever it was called. And, uh, and I met with the president and I said, hey, you just took all of our funding. We can't do fun things because every student, you know, we'd get $1,500 every Friday because everyone wanted to wear jeans. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we still had to wear a shirt and tie. You know, we still had to wear a coat, you know, but jeans, man, that was it. That was the thing. And, uh, and, he, and he quoted this verse to me and he said, I, this is a direct quote. He said, I should be able to walk out into the lobby of the church, you know, after church and based on the way a young man is dressed, Ask him if he wants to, to preach or not. And I was like, whoa, dumb tax. You know what I mean? Like, did, did you not read? I didn't say that to him or I would have gotten expelled, right? Did you not read, read the story? 
That's not, that's exactly the opposite. That this is not about an appearance that I look some way to be a good Christian or I'm better. Uh, you know, for us again, it was, you know, you can't have tattoos, can't have earrings, all that stuff. It's ridiculous. As if my outward appearance said something about my spirituality. It's utter nonsense. Okay, sorry, my rant's over. Back to the sermon. So goes on, continuing in the story. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. And Samuel says to Jesse, are all your sons here? Right? And Jesse's like, oh, well, yeah, there's one more. I mean, I, this is just David. He's out with the sheep, right? He's a shepherd. He works outside. He's dirty. He's nasty. He's just out there. I didn't even, I forgot about David. And he said, yeah, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. <laughs> I, just, I just can't imagine the story of Samuel going to Jesse. Hey, get all your sons. One of them's going to be king. And he goes through and he's like, any, is there any, is someone missing? He's like, oh yeah, yeah, David, but he's with the sheep. He's not a king. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him for we will not sit down until he comes, comes here. And he sent and brought him in. And now he was ruddy, ruddy. I had to look that one up, having a healthy red color. I didn't write it, just translating it for you. I don't know what that means. He was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Not that, again, has nothing to do with being a good king. It's just the description here of David. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. And that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So, so now King David is chosen to be king. And there's this, again, storyline. If we go back, we can kind of see these themes that have already happened just in the few, few sermons that we've gone through to this point. That there's this, the unlikely individual keeps being chosen by God. Again, Abram, this homeless individual, not that it's a bad thing to be homeless, but idol-worshiping pagan. And God's like, yeah, that's going to be my guy. That's going to be my man. One that all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through Abraham. His grandson, Jacob, is going to be second-born, the deceiver. That's what Jacob means. And God chooses him. And then just a wild turn that not Joseph's line, not Manasseh is chosen to be the, 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 the tribe that's going to be chosen, that we're kings and where Jesus is going to come from. But Judah, not a good guy. And then, and then again, just his wife, or his, wife his, his mom, Leah, it's a weird family tree, so it's not that crazy to think of. Leah, who was just not the, just wasn't beautiful, wasn't, God chooses just the, just the ones that you wouldn't pick in the story to carry on the bloodline of Jesus. And so then we get this covenant, this promise that I've read already, that God goes through Samuel talking to David and speaking directly to David and makes this covenant with him. I will establish the throne of your kingdom, David, forever. Now, when you hear that, when David hears that, how would you interpret that? You would interpret it the way that David interpreted it that my children and their children and their children's children, that, that my descendants are always going to be seated on the throne of Israel. That's just going to be a thing. But it doesn't take long before that doesn't happen, like not even close. God makes this covenant. And then David, though, says there's all this, there's all this, uh, he, he, he acquires wealth from Saul. He's a king, right? He's got this huge palace. 
And King David's sitting in his palace and he's got his big wooden timbers and his gold and silver everywhere. And he's like, you know what, God? You should have one of these palaces too. Let me build you a, a palace. Let me build you a temple. And God's like, no, it's not about this stuff. Don't you know that I already own all this stuff? Like it's not a, I don't care. It's not about buildings. It's not about that. And David is just, again, just a very physical, earthly, kingdom-minded And God does something a little differently with his kingdom, and it's not going to be a physical kingdom. And we know this because the bloodline changes very quickly, as we're going to see that the kingdom doesn't last very long under David. That you have Saul gone, he unites the kingdom. You have David. David has a son, Solomon. Cool, everything's good. And then right after Solomon, boom, split. Rehoboam and Jeroboam, it's it's all done after that. Well, whoa, whoa, what about these covenants? The covenant, the kingdom is going to be forever. Well, it's something different here. And so let's look at this kingdom of God. And so um, this outline is about to get really weird. <laughs> I apologize. I couldn't format it the right way. So just forgive me. I took a class on proper outlines. Okay. Uh, I promise. Just bear with me. But I want to look at two ways that we can learn from others' mistakes, that we can let, let them pay the dumb tax. And one is by thinking that we can buy God's kingdom. So we're fast forwarding a lot in the story. We're going to go from King David all the way to Jesus. We're actually passing the life of Jesus, who's born again in a lowly estate by a descendant of Judah, born in the tribe of Judah in Bethlehem, which we just saw with King David, the city of David is what it's called. And he's born there that both Joseph and Mary are our descendants here of Judah, this tribe and everything checks out. And God, Jesus is born and he's talking about this kingdom and he's talking about this kingdom of God and his disciples are always constantly thinking about a physical kingdom. That Jesus, you're gonna, you're gonna kick out the Romans. This is great. Just like, would you stop with that? No, that's not how this is gonna work. And they're like, yeah, I, like wink, wink. Like I know you say that's not the kingdom, but we get it. We know the story, like, you're, gonna, you're gonna win. And so we think, well, we see, even at this, uh, at this aspect here, that we can, in Acts chapter 8, see an individual who tries to buy the kingdom or try to buy God's favor. But there was a man named Simon in Acts chapter 8 who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him for a long time because he amazed, because he had amazed them with his magic. And I'm, gonna, I'm skipping a little bit here in the story, but then it says, but when they believed Philip, so Philip is preaching the gospel. What does he say? He preached the good news about the kingdom of God. Jesus uses that language multiple times. That it's the good news of the kingdom. It's the good news of the kingdom. What, good news is what we call the gospel. Gospel, it's good news. It's not this physical kingdom. It's the gospel. There's something about it that's different. And he preaches the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. And they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing the signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So he's following and he's seen the the Holy Spirit work through Philip. And he's like, wow, that's so cool. I want some of that extra magic power, right? I want to be able to do that. I want to monetize this kingdom of God stuff. This is amazing. I was actually going to uh, cut this just for time, but I think it's really important. I think, that, let me just read this passage and then, and then so it's just same, same story. And now when the apostles at Jerusalem 
heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, the spirit of God, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So this is really, really interesting. So Simon, again, believes, but then he doesn't get the spirit of God. And his Samaritan, again, this, these are not Jewish individuals. They're, they're half Jewish, half Gentile, and the Jews hated these individuals, but they start to believe in the gospel. They believe the same thing that this church in Jerusalem is starting to believe, but the Holy Spirit doesn't descend on them the way that it did, okay? So I left this in here for a reason because it's beautiful here what the Holy Spirit does. It's beautiful that God in his sovereignty that when the Samaritans, these outsiders, believe the same gospel that if the Holy Spirit would have descended on them, what would we have? We would have to this day, I guarantee it, a Jewish church and a Gentile church it immediately would have been a split in the kingdom of God. And that's not the kingdom of God. And God says, no, 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 no. I want you, the leaders, the Jewish leaders that are of this church to go to Samaria, your enemies, people that you hate of their ethnicity and the color of their skin. And I want you to go over there and I want you to put hands on them. And then I'm going to unite my church. That's what I'm going to do. Right? We learned from the dumb tax. We learned that we're better together. And I think we can look, I, man, I, I, I love the fact that we get to be here at this building, that we participate, we hold hands with other churches that we disagree on some pretty minor things. But we wanna preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And we're better together because of it. I think it speaks volumes to the community. So continuing, now when the apostles at Jerusalem, oh, I already did that one. Now, when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Okay, so he's like, this is great. I want some that saying, give me this power also so that anyone who I lay my hands on may receive the spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. And we're gonna see, I'm not gonna read it, but he repents. And, 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 the, and the spirit then uh, descends on him and he is a follower of Jesus. But I think that we can again learn from Simon's dumb tax here. And we can say that if we want God's favor, it's not about what I give. It's not about even giving. We, 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 it's not about how much money I give to the church. I don't want your money. Jesus doesn't want your money. He wants your heart and your devotion. It's not about buildings and budgets and butts. That's always the big thing. When you go to, when you go to a church conference, the, the line that people give, how much are you running? How many, how many people are in your church? I don't care. I really don't. Now, every person that's here, I love you. That's what I don't take it that way. I don't care. Whatever. Oh, of course. The more people and the more people get to hear the good news of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, for sure. It's not about money. It's not about buildings. It's not about butts, budgets, all that stuff. The three B's. Three B's of church planning. Not about that. Another one that we can do, a mistake that we can make, is not seeing Jesus actually as true king. The Apostle Paul, just again further in the, in the, in the book of Acts, is preaching at Antioch. It's a, a, a Greek city. And the Apostle Paul, he, he recounts Israel's history of, of God calling them out of Egypt and winning these victories and all these different things that happens to where they're at now. And he says this, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, 
that this he has fulfilled to use us, their children, by raising Jesus. So it is written in the second Psalm. So he's saying, hey, you're, you're Gentile, we're Jewish, but God sent his Messiah, his promised chosen one through our bloodline. For whatever reason, that's what he did. And so now we get to share that good news with you, my Gentile, my Greek brothers and sisters. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. He's quoting Psalm 2 here. And as, and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and the sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Here's the point. This is what the apostle Paul, the whole point of quoting these Psalms and the king thing, what's going on? For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. For he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Again, looking at the, the bloodline, David, Solomon, Rehoboam, done. right? You, you've got the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians and the Romans take over everything, take over the land. There is no king sitting on a throne. And yet, there's a very different mindset. You're thinking of kings, throne, physical. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, there is forgiveness of sins. There's a huge difference. He just goes from kingdom and throne talk and king talk to, here's the point, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed, the good news of the kingdom of God. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. We just looked at this last week. But there's this law, and I think, again, the, the Greeks have been looking in, out, right? Like from the outside looking in, and so you're trying to obey all these laws. You guys have all these rules, and he's saying, yeah, it's not about this. It's not about becoming an Israelite. It's not about becoming Jewish. It's not about becoming a member of a church. It's got nothing to do with any of that stuff. Be free in Christ. Believe the good news of the gospel, that he loves you, that he sent his son to die for you, that he died for your sins that you cannot pay. That's the whole point. And one thing that I have to remind myself that when we look, and I've said this so many times here, so I may make it old. When we look at like the gospel of like verses, the other day I was at uh, Nolan's place. Someone right across the street from him, I'm sure, I'm sure they're a great individual. I don't know who they are, but they have like rocks painted with scripture verses on it. Like, here's how you come to Jesus. That's great. I think that's fantastic, right? However, uh, it, it's not just that. Right? It's not just like, here's the good news, the gospel, and that gospel is for unbelievers. Right? The gospel's for people out there. Right? I, I've got it, so here's, I'm going to paint my rock. I'm sure this is a great person. I love them. I don't know who they are. I'm going to paint my rock, and, and then people will, will then know the gospel. The problem with that, not that there's a problem with that, the issue that I have myself is that nine out of ten passages and verses that you can think about that is like the gospel of Jesus is written to the church. I mean, every verse you can think of, like going through Romans and Ephesians and Galatians, it's written to the church and the church already believes the gospel. I already believe the gospel. I believe in the freedom from the law that I have from because of Christ. And yet I always, again, submit myself underneath that yaw, that law and that yoke of slavery to the law and to death and to sin. So what does this mean for us today? And what does it not mean? 
I think what we can learn from Israel's mistake, looking at the kingdom of God and what we can learn from is don't engineer even bigger dinosaurs. <laughs> why, why are we so quick to go back to putting our faith and trust in a system that's broken, to putting our faith and our trust in a kingdom, in a physical kingdom or a king or a president or a nation. It's just, it's, that's the dumb tax. Israel already paid that. Why, why do we do that over and over again? Two, two points, they're gospel applications. Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is on the throne. Psalm 115 describes Jesus that, that he's waiting to make all of his enemies his footstool. We live in this time, the theologians call the already not yet, meaning that Jesus already came and he already died for my sins, that he's already won the victory, that he is seated on his throne, but it's not this physical realm. He's already done that, but not yet. We're not, we're not there yet in the sense that Jesus has returned that he is gonna make this entire world one theocracy again, that he will rule and reign and he will be seated on a throne and make all the things wrong, untrue. The pain and suffering that we see now, he's gonna undo it. He's gonna say, no, 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 it's not about that. And this is all gonna be for my glory. It's all gonna be from this new world, but it's not there yet. And so in this meantime, we're in pain and suffering and deceit. And we have to be reminded that Jesus is on the throne with his feet up. He's got his feet on, a, on, a, on an ottoman. And we get so worked up about whatever it may be in our decision-making. And we have to remember that it's Jesus who's on the throne. And so when it becomes decision-making time, whatever it may be, a new endeavor, should we... Should I, should, should I get married? Do I want to get married? What college should I go to? Should I pursue a different degree? Uh, should we buy a home? Uh, should I start a new business? And you fill in the blank. When it comes to decision-making time, is it Jesus seated on the throne or is it me and my kingdom, my happiness on my throne? Is it my safety, my well-being, or is it Jesus? Jesus is on the throne. Secondly, this may make some of you mad. Cool. Brian at hopecc.com. It's my email. Do I put my trust or even too much trust in a man-made kingdom slash government? It is so easy to go back and trust the physical. It is so easy to take my eyes off the throne and the good news, the kingdom of God and say, yeah, but what about here? You know what I mean? Like, what about now? It's so easy to look to a man or a woman to fix what's going on around us. I can't tell you enough, the gospel is the answer. The gospel is the answer. When we look at, at problems and things in the, in the world and the outside around us, I want to tell them about the good news of Jesus. When I see the wrong in my own heart, I want to tell myself the good news of Jesus. That's the answer. Because my heart needs to change, not some force from the outside, some government that's going to tell me what to do. Uh, to quote Roger Williams, uh, 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 what is it? Christening makes not one a Christian, right? Just 
making someone obey the rules of Christianity doesn't make them a Christian. It doesn't make them a good person. It's only Jesus. And so, if I can say it, this Christian evangelical political force that's going on right now in our country to me is mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. It's got nothing to do with this. As if God were party-specific or American. <laughs> like God is just like up there like, come on, America. You can do it. You can become a Christian nation again. What? No. It's not a theocracy. It never was a theocracy. We are not God's chosen nation. We don't have a king on the throne. And he's not Republican or Democratic or Independent or of the weed party or whatever it is. <laughs> uh, I did the math last night. You know that, did you know that you had a 4% chance, even less than that, to become and be born an American? You know, I love America. Don't get me wrong. I love the United States. I love the freedoms that I have. I love that I can get up here every single week and I can actually do this that maybe back in Soviet Russia would be considered treason. Treason? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to worry about the government coming in here and arresting me or telling me you can't say that. I, get, I have that. I am so thankful that I was sovereignly by the grace of God born in the United States of America. I love it but my faith has nothing to do with being an American. God cares about Americans, not America. He cares about his image bearers. And he died. He sent his son to die to give them his good news. It's about Jesus seated on the throne. Always. It's his kingdom. Not mine, not ours. Jesus. So just in conclusion, it is Jesus who is seated on the throne. That is a biblical truism, <laughs> right? That's a fact. Jesus is on the throne. The question is, do we acknowledge it? Do we acknowledge it within our everyday situations and decision-making? Do we rely again too much on ourselves and systems and politics? That's going to that's gonna fix it. That's going to be the answer. Or do we rely and preach to ourselves and preach to our neighbors and communities and friends and coworkers and roommates the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ? That he can take something like me and like you that is broken, that is selfish, and he can make all things new. That he can give us a new heart, a heart of flesh, one that was, was one stone, and he can breathe life into it. It doesn't make us better than anybody. It just allows us then to preach the good news to other people as well. Jesus is on the throne. And we get to remember that like we do every week here at Lower Town. We're going to partake of these elements and, and these elements just represent the body, the wafer that represents the body of Christ and the, and the blood of Christ that the juice represents that was shed for us. That it is Jesus who descends, that he humbles himself, setting, setting his glory and his dominion aside. He sets it aside so that he lives this Humble life, not one of a king, but he is king. He's the king. And he sets everything aside and he dies on a cross for our sins. He breaks his body. He sheds his blood for us that as we partake of these elements, we get to remember that Jesus is seated on the throne. And we have to ask and examine yourself. Is he actually seated on the throne of my heart?
when I think about sins that I'm fighting and things that I'm trying to, to kill and put to death, is he seated on my on my on the throne of my heart on that specific issue? You like you got you got everything else. Like, yeah, cool, you Jesus, you're king. I get that, but man, that's one thing, man. I, I don't know. Does it feel like you're seated on the throne? He is. Uh, all I would ask with these elements is that you're a follower of Jesus. You don't need to be a member of this church or any church. We practice something that's called open communion. And so you can come up and, and grab these elements as you see fit uh, and go ahead and take a seat, pray, confess, repent, whatever it may be. Uh, the worship team will sing uh, two songs. And as they're doing that, feel free to grab the elements and feel free to stand whenever and sing along with them um, if that's how you feel led. Let me go ahead and pray and then we will continue worshiping through communion and remembering what it is that Christ did on the cross as the worship team sings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are king. That as we look at the world around us, even through the lens of an American or just as a human being on this planet, it is so easy to try to set up systems and governments to try to fix things that are wrong. And while those things themselves are not inherently bad or evil. They're just not the answer. And so I just pray that we wouldn't put our faith and trust in these man-made systems. We would put our faith and trust in the good news of the kingdom of God, of your king. And the gates of hell don't stand a chance that the good news can, can go forth and change lives, change attitudes from hearts of stones into hearts of flesh. So I pray as we partake of these elements that you again, would be honored and glorified as we lift up your son's name, as he is seated on the throne. And we pray, I pray, come Lord Jesus. Oh, we want you to return. We want you to make things new. Well, we want you to establish your kingdom. But until that time, I pray that we would know that you are seated on the throne, on the throne of our hearts, in the throne of your kingdom, in the spiritual realm that we cannot see. So we pray these things in your son's name of Jesus. Amen.